It is a privilege to speak the Word of God to you, and we are going to jump into this. By way of introduction, I have a question I'd like to start with, especially in light of all that goes on this time of year. Don't you just love watching a great comeback in sports? How many of you enjoy that? Seeing a team that was counted out, it was impossible for them even, I mean, they shouldn't even be in this game. And all of a sudden, slowly but surely, as the time clicks on, they start to get back in the game. Well, 1992, in the NFL playoffs, the Buffalo Bills faced the Houston Oilers. And they were in the third quarter, and the score was 35-3. to Now, even if you don't like football or you don't like sports, that's not, you can recognize, that is not a good place to be. 35 to three. This is the playoffs. You lose, you go home. And it didn't look very good for the Buffalo Bills. But the game was not over. There was still time left on the clock, so they kept fighting. The team would not back down. The coach would not back down. The players, the captains, kept rallying the team. Say, come on, let's just take it one step at a time, one score at a time. And not only would they score enough points to get back in the game, they tied it and sent it to overtime. Now, if you're the Houston Oilers, you are just, you're just flabbergasted. How did we blow this? But the Bills fought. They came back, did the impossible. No team up to this point had ever done this. And during overtime, the Buffalo Bills would kick a field goal to win the game and send their team deeper in the playoffs, and they went all the way to the Super Bowl. Now, they lost the Super Bowl, but they made it all the way to the big game. Now, just for sake of illustration, do you think that when the team was down, do you think they ever thought about quitting? Do you think they ever stopped believing that it was possible for them to win? You know, there are times in our lives, just by way of illustration here, to apply it to us, there are times when we feel like we're down 35 to 3. Our faith is a mustard seed or smaller. (laughs) I mean, it is, our, our faith may even be described as weak and even frail, barely even, maybe on life support at this point. What do you do in those situations? See, the passage we're going to look at tonight is not just one of those believe the impossible and it will happen type stories. What this story does, as Pastor Farrell exhorted us this morning, it exalts the God who does impossible things in our eyes. It exalts the God who says, I am the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? I mean, just think about that statement. I made everything and nothing is too hard for me. If God can make Everything that is. Go look at Genesis 1. Read all that he did. Just read the mighty works of God in the Psalms. And you start to sit back and say, this isn't too hard. The thing I'm going through isn't too hard for God. It is impossible for me, but it isn't too hard for God. And this passage we're going to look at tonight exalts the God of the impossible. I trust this passage tonight, the text here, will restore your frail and trembling faith by galvanizing your trust in a strong and sovereign Savior. This strong Savior gives us every reason to trust Him. 
even in the face of something that seems utterly impossible. So turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 9. Entitled this, Frail Faith and a Strong Savior. While you're turning, to set the stage, we're, we don't have the benefit of having the, the first eight chapters and even into chapter 9 being um, laid out for us. So just to tell you where we are, we are, we've just parachuted into the middle of Mark 9. Right after the great transfiguration of Christ, Peter, James, and John have just witnessed this stunning display of the Shekinah glory of Christ, and now they're coming down the mountain to see something far different than what they just saw. John MacArthur gives us this contrast before we get into this passage. I just want to read this to you. It's so helpful for you to, as, as we're parachuting into this. The transfiguration, he says, happened on a mountain. What happens now is in the valley below. In the transfiguration, there was glory. In the valley, there is suffering. In the transfiguration, God dominates the scene. In the valley here, Satan seeks to dominate the scene. In the transfiguration, the Father is pleased In this story, there is an earthly father who is tortured. In the transfiguration, there is a perfect son on display. In the valley, there is a perverted son possessed by a demon. In the transfiguration, you have fallen men and holy wonder. And in this story that we're going to read, you have a fallen son in unholy horror. This is no doubt one of the most dramatic scenes in all of the New Testament. Let's begin reading. Chapter 9, verse 14. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. And immediately, one of Mark's favorite words, immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him and said, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they couldn't do it. And he answered them, answering the disciples, and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when he, the boy, saw him, immediately the Spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he, being Christ, asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. 
Help my unbelief. Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering. He rebuked the unclean spirit and saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into a terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he got up. And when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. The issue here of this passage is faith. It is belief. And we know from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 that we walk by faith and not by sight. Paul also told the Galatians, we live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We believe and we live by faith in an object, that object being God, being Christ. Faith is the dominating feature of every Christian because we have to put our trust entirely in what we cannot see. We think about this for a moment. Talking about faith. We trust in a God we have not seen. We trust in a Christ we have not seen. We trust in the Holy Spirit we have not seen. We embrace a death and a resurrection that we have not seen. We trust in a justification we have not seen for ourselves, tangibly or physically before us. We look for a fulfillment in eternal heaven one day that we have not seen. Peter describes us this way, we love the one we have not seen. However, this is not a blind faith, it is a faith based on evidence. And the evidence of our faith, watch this, which anchors our faith in the script is the scripture. It is the very word of God. This is the evidence. Because this tells us all we need to know. It is a sure and true word. And we live by it and rest our lives on it. So keep that in mind as we're talking about faith. We're putting our faith in the strong Savior who now has given us his word. First point here is man's powerlessness portrayed by unbelief. This is going to take us from verses 14 through 24. Underneath that we see the controversy over Christ's ability. Look back in verse 14 and we're going to see something here that is very familiar. If you're used to reading through the book of Mark or reading through the life of Christ, this happens all the time. Who are the ones that keep arguing over what Christ is teaching and over what Christ is able or not able or shouldn't be doing? on the Sabbath or otherwise. It is the scribes and the Pharisees. And here the scribes are arguing with the disciples and it appears that they've been doing this for a long time. Christ and His disciples are arriving at a scene that's already taking place. You ever done that before? Walked into the middle of a conversation? Walked into the middle of an argument? Maybe you're walking into a grocery store, walking into your place of employment, Walking into school, teens, you know, when you walk in or something, and you, or you walk into the living room, and someone's, two people are going at it. 
And it looks like they've been doing it for a long time. Now, unlike Christ, you have no idea what's just happened. Peter, James, and John have no idea what's been going on, but Christ knows. He knows exactly what's happening here. The scribes are challenging Christ's teaching. They're challenging His ability to cast out demons. They're challenging the ability that He gave His disciples to do so already. I mean, think about it here. The scribes and the Pharisees are on an all-out blitz toward Christ now. He's already headed to Jerusalem. He's on His way. He's traveling from place to place. Even the demons themselves are, are joining in this. And He's going to show us, Christ is going to show us again and again that He has the supreme authority over all. And they come back to the disciples down from the mountain. What are they doing? They're arguing. And immediately, verse 15, when the entire crowd saw Him, they were amazed and began running up to Him. This is a very important aspect to the story. Because what you don't read here in the Scripture is not only could the disciples not cast out the demons, could the scribes do it either? I mean, nobody can do this. That's why, there's, that's why I call it the man's powerlessness. So far we're seeing powerlessness in the disciples, we're seeing powerlessness in the scribes, and now comes Christ on the scene. And if Christ can't do it, then no one can, right? And they've already heard about what He is able to do, and they run up to greet Him. And Christ, in verse 16, asks them, what are you discussing? What is it that you are trying to do? He knows they're trying to discredit Him. He knows that they're trying to protect their turf against His teaching and drive the people back to the systems of Judaism that they have so long taught. But now the crowd is completely taken aback. They are amazed to see Christ walking towards Him. And He steps in here in a wonderful way. He's the protector. He's the... He's the rescuer of his disciples in this moment, as well as the demon-possessed boy, as we will see. So there's this controversy over Christ's ability. Obviously, there is no controversy. Christ is supreme over all. He is going to do what no one else can do, in spite of what the scribes are saying. But then we see this father, and I want us to draw our attention to this man. This father is not mentioned by name other than that he is the father of someone who has been possessed by a demon his entire existence since he was a child. Can you imagine this? Some of you think your children are possessed. Okay? But this this guy could prove it. (laughs) (laughs) Another sermon for another day. But this, and we say that tongue-in-cheek. Sometimes we laugh and joke. But this is is serious, folks. This, This boy was possessed by a demon. We don't know why. We don't know how it happened. Why? I mean, I'm reading the text probably like you are going, how did a child have a demon inside of them? How did this happen? What was his home life like? What was the father doing or not doing? We, we, we can speculate all you want, but this has been happening for a very long time. For the best, as we know, this boy is, is now grown up, maybe a teenager, maybe even beyond. And the father has seen his boy throw himself down and try to drown himself, try to kill himself a number of different ways, through fire, through other things, slamming himself against walls. He's had to deal with this, not just for an afternoon, not just for a couple of years, but for an entire existence. And he's at the breaking point. 
He is desperate, as we all would be. I find it interesting here that the scribes don't answer. The disciples don't answer Christ when he says, what are you discussing? It says, one from the crowd in verse 17. And that's where the father enters into the picture. He says, I brought you my son. I'm bringing him to you. He's possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. This demon had also had control over whether this, whether this boy would even speak. And apparently he could also, according to Matthew 17 and Luke 9, the parallel passage, he couldn't hear as well. doesn't mean that if, there are, if, if you are mute or if you are deaf, that that is a demon possessing you, but that is, that's the effect that this demon had on this particular boy. And he cries out to Christ. Matthew adds that the man was actually falling on his knees. Falling on his knees. Matthew says that he calls him Lord. Here we see he's calling him teacher. This man comes before Christ knowing this is his only hope. Matthew also says in, verse, in chapter 17 that he shouted. He wants to be heard. He wants, every, he, wants Christ to make, he wants to make sure that Christ hears him. This demon is literally battering this kid and he foams at the mouth. This is not some brain dysfunction. This is demon domination. And Christ is listening to this cry from someone who is powerless to change anything that is happening or has happened to his son. And the sad part is when you get down to verse 18, he brought his son to the disciples. Now if you go back in further passages of Mark, the disciples were sent out to do what? Anyone remember? They were to go from place to place, or to preach the gospel. They were also given power by Christ to do, I'll give you a little hint here, to heal and to cast out demons. Now, if you go back to those passages, was, was that mission successful? You will see that the disciples did those very things. But keep in mind, not to unveil the rest of the points here, but they did it in the power of Christ. They were dependent upon Him. Here they are seeking to do it on their own. And what's the result? What's the result that we see here? It says, I brought them to the disciples, to your followers, to the ones that that have been going about doing these things, and they couldn't do it. You see, at the end of this passage, where the disciples are completely frustrated, they are flabbergasted at how this happened, why they couldn't drive out the demons. And obviously they couldn't drive out anything. It was only by dependence upon God, as we will see. But there's a huge disappointment here. Christ is his only hope. But before he heals anybody, you see the rebuke of the faithless. This is all under man's powerlessness, portrayed in this unbelief, this lack of faith. Look, if you would, in verse 19, he answered them. Okay, picture this. Father's coming. He's on his knees. He's crying out, Lord, teacher, I need your help. This is what's happening to my boy. I need you to heal him. No one else can do it. And he turns aside from the Father and addresses his disciples. He takes some time here to show them this is why. 
O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Jesus had delegated power to them. He had given them power to cast out unclean spirits in chapter 6. And now his words may seem a little harsh, but they are needed. He's adding perverted generation. How did this get so twisted? How did you you not follow through with what I asked you to do? Maybe the disciples are thinking about Deuteronomy 32 where, where we read, You're a perverse and crooked generation. Sons in whom there is no faithfulness, no trust. That's exactly what's happening here. The disciples were waning in their faith. See, the frail faith is not just the father who is on his knees begging for healing. The frail faith is also in the disciples. And it's waning. Instead, they're trusting in themselves and not in Christ. But Jesus' exasperation is not just over the disciples' faithlessness. When he says how long, it could also refer to the fact as well that his hour had not come. Because there is going to come a time when the disciples' faith is going to be going to be pressed to the breaking point. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when, when everything breaks loose and the disciples have to believe, is this their Messiah or not? Our, our King, our, our conquering hero is being taken away to be crucified. And what happens? They, they fail then again to believe and stand with their Messiah. Christ knows this. He knows that this is an opportunity to shepherd them But there is going to come a time where all of these apostles would gladly, except for Judas, would gladly and will submit their lives to Christ in martyrdom for their Savior. But the rebuke here of Christ is needed as a gracious reminder that they needed in preparation for that day. But not only do we see man's powerlessness, and I hope we're going to get some life application here at the end, but I want you to see yourself in this. My powerlessness, your powerlessness is portrayed most vividly, I believe, in how we trust God. If we, if we are unbelief, if we, if we choose not to trust, there is no power. But secondly, we also see not just man's powerlessness, but we see Christ's power displayed through faith. Christ gives hope and life where there was nothing but hopelessness and death. I love how he says here at the end of um, verse, verse 19, Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. And just like almost every demonic encounter, what happens? I mean, I think the maniac of Gadara, there was, there was a little bit of submission there where he falls down here. And in most cases, the, demoni- the, 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 the demon is just going crazy. He knows that he is standing before the Son of the living God, the Most High. He is face to face with the sovereign Lord of the universe. And this demonic display of vile power is going on. This this demon is trying to kill this boy once and for all. He's tried and failed, but now that he's before the Lord, now that he's before the Son of God, he is going to try his hardest to throw him down and kill him. 
It says, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, falling to the ground. He began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And Jesus says, how long has this been happening? And he says, from childhood. This has happened before. He throws himself into a fire um, like they would have open fires all around the city or maybe you know, wash tubs or other, or other bodies of water even. And they would, he would try to drown himself. Verse 22. Why do you think Christ is asking these questions? Let's just pause for a moment in the story. Why do you think he's asking these questions? Don't you think Christ knows the answer to all of this? Anytime Christ asks a question, is not to, to gain knowledge. We know that. Why is he asking it? I believe because he wanted to hear the Father express his pain. He wanted the Father to tell him the story so that everyone else around could hear it as well. He wanted the Father to express once again that he was powerless and, and he was helpless and that he needed Christ's help. He needed Christ to save him. I think this is an act of compassion of Christ that he cares enough to listen to this father talk about the pain that he's experienced for who knows how many years. He cares about your suffering too. He cares about the struggles that you are having with your children. He cares about the things that break your heart and he promises to bear those things. This is not just power being displayed. This is a person, the ultimate person, who loves you with an everlasting love. This isn't just for the crowd here. It's not just for, for him to give some prayer request so that everyone can hear it and also be praying. He is, he's letting this father voice his pain because he cares to listen. He cares. Why? Because Jesus is the sympathetic and merciful high priest. Is He not? He's the one who's been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He wants the Father to have an opportunity to rehearse what He has suffered so that now Christ can enter in and save Him. I think it's very interesting that the Father has spent probably His whole life in this effort to keep His Son from being killed by this demon. Seeking to rescue Him probably out of wells and pools and fires. What a life this Father has had. And Christ is saying, I want to listen to you first. I want to hear what you have experienced. I want you to say it to me. I want you to know that I care deeply about your pain. I'm not just coming in here as a miracle worker, going to heal your son and walk away. I care about you. I care about your, your soul. I care about what you've experienced. And we see that the, the father gets to the breaking point. He just eventually just just falls down and says, if you can do anything, I, I will take any improvement. I will take anything you can do. If you'll just help us. It's a very interesting word there, to help us. It means to run to the aid of someone who needs help, who is crying for help. He says, will you run to my aid? Will you run and save me? And save my son? If you can, he says. And Jesus says to him in verse 23, what does he say? If you can. He's not insulting the Father here. He's reminding the Father about what's about to happen. You, do you know who is standing in front of you? 
Do you know that I have the power over demons? I have the power over all things. I am supreme over everything. This father has no doubt exhausted all of their means and measures. And here Christ is reassuring him, there is nothing to fear. You ever do that with your children when they're afraid? Maybe it's of something really silly or it could be something really legitimate. And they say, you know, I'm scared. I need, I need help. Dad, what's going to happen? Mom, what's going to happen to me? And you give them that reassurance, I'm here. It's going to be okay. And Jesus is saying, not only is it just going to be okay, I am, I'm about to display my power. And I'm going to build your faith. I'm going to build the disciples' faith through this. My power is going to be on display. John MacArthur says this. Jesus essentially says, by if you can, he says, how can anyone just talk about mere possibilities when the God of the universe is standing before him and all things are possible? And that's where Christ steps in here and he says these words that we like to quote all the time. But look at it in context. This, this dad has exhausted everything else. He, he's, he's at the breaking point. And Jesus says in verse 23, All things are possible to him who believes. All things are possible to him who believes. Make no mistake here, the Lord is not expecting perfect faith here. Though he is worthy of it. He only expects an imperfect faith because that's all He will ever get out of us because we're all, every time we believe, there might be obviously a measure of doubt mixed in. Just like this man right here. The boy's father cries out in verse 24 and says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. In other words, he's saying, run to my unbelief. Run to my aid. Help me to keep believing. Come and dispel my doubts, is what he is saying. And look at what happens. When Jesus sees a crowd was rapidly gathering, this proves to me that he's not just waiting for it. Hey, okay, guys, come over here. I'm going to show you something. He sees the crowd coming and he quickly acts. Not to get more attention, not to get more followers, not to do something spectacular for everyone to see. This is about the boy. This is about the father. This is about the disciples who need to see what's important here. That is about faith in Christ. Not about what they can do, but what Christ is about to do. Doing what they couldn't do. Look at verse 25. When the crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebukes the unclean spirit. And he says, you deaf and mute spirit. He is calling out the very thing that the spirit was doing, this evil, this unclean spirit was doing to the boy. He calls him that. He says, you are deaf and you are mute. The very thing you've sought to debilitate in this boy, that's what you are. And you're going down. You're going out. And you're never coming back. That's how powerful Christ is. He rebukes this unclean spirit. Matthew 17 says it comes out of him at once. The demon leaves a man in Matthew chapter 12 in the, in the story that Christ tells and seven more come back and the end is worse than the beginning. But not this boy, not this time. Christ says it's not going to happen. 
His father had dealt with this his entire, the entire life of this boy, and now in one instant, the demon comes out. But not without a final protest. There is a vicious protest here at the end. Look at what happens in verse 26. After crying out and throwing him again into a terrible convulsion, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. The demon was going to have one last effort, one last ditch reply to Christ. But Christ comes over and compassionately picks him up, raises him up. The boy comes up. And I think it's very interesting that Luke adds this, that Jesus gives the son back to his father. Look at that tenderness there. What a magnificent scene that must have been. Christ again conquering, giving hope and life where there was hopelessness and death. And now he's going to switch to Christ is now calling his disciples to that God-centered dependence where there was a self-centered focus. Jesus is going to shepherd his disciples to depend fully on God and not themselves. They actually leave and go to a house. We don't know what house. Could have been obviously somewhere in Caesarea Philippi. So his disciples began questioning him privately. Why couldn't we drive it out? Why couldn't we do this? And Christ says, this kind, this, this specific kind of spirit cannot come out by anything but prayer. What is Christ saying? Is he telling us how to cast out demons? No, he's telling his disciples, you will never be able to command on your own. You are going to have to depend on me. And prayer is that highway that faith takes into the power of God. Prayer is the highway that takes faith into His power. You thought you could pull it off without me, but you can't. It's not that the disciples needed to muster up more faith or more power. They needed to follow the Father's example of desperate dependence in the story and acknowledge their unbelief. You see, Jesus could have let them succeed without this kind of faith. He could have said, He could have let them succeed without prayer. He could have let them succeed by thinking they could do it on their own. He could have had them think that prayer wasn't necessary. But no, He says prayer is the only way this is going to happen. Dependence upon God. See, the point here is not learning how to cast out demons or even how to change the earth's surface by moving mountains and another passage that we would read about faith. We're learning here how a very small amount of struggling, grasping, clinging faith can draw us into God dependently, trusting and causing God's power to be released to do His will through our lives. So we see here Christ's power is displayed through faith. Man's powerless is portrayed by unbelief. Now, I want to talk about some application for us. So you get the story. You see what's happened as we have walked through this briefly here tonight. So how does this apply to you? What are the implications? Walk by faith in God's infinite ability, not in your finite resources. 
I believe here that the disciples' inability to cast out the demons only proved to magnify the surpassing greatness and power of Jesus. They couldn't do it, but Jesus did. Doesn't that sound like the Gospel? You can't, but Jesus did and can. You are unable. Jesus is able. With us, this is impossible. But with God, all things and His will are possible. This is, this is the theme of the Gospel here. This is the theme of our salvation. Not trusting in my ability. Not trusting in my resources. Not trusting in my strength. But in God's infinite ability. I'm going to ask you something here tonight. When, when you come to the end of yourself, really to the end of your rope, where do you go? Where do you look? What do you do in that moment? When you've exasperated everything else, when, like the Father who is in this story, you've tried everything, all measures, all means, and you're desperate, what do you do? This isn't some cliche. This is what the Bible says. Walk by faith. Looking to Him who you cannot see at resources you cannot see. But you have the truth, the evidence of things not seen. And to rest your life on His infinite resources. When we're confronted with our limitations, we should look at our limitless God who can do all things. That's what the disciples failed to do here. That's what the Father here is asking. I need you. I'm at the point where I need you not only to heal my son, but you need to enable me even to believe in this moment because I'm doubting. Get me to the point of belief. (laughs) And God promises to do that. Secondly, when you struggle with doubting God's ability, remember that all things within His will are possible through His power. Now, maybe you don't have a demon-possessed kid at home. Maybe that is not your issue. But what is currently going on in your life that you're at the breaking point, that you are, you are desperate, that you say, this is utterly impossible? In other words, you've already said, it's, not, it's never going to happen. I wrote down a few things that might be true of you and, and myself as well. How about that unsaved relative? You've prayed for them. You've witnessed to them. They know the gospel. And they continually reject it. Is that a lost cause? You say, well, I can't save them. Right. But are you going to stop believing that God can? What about your continual struggle with the same sins over and over again? What about strained relationships with family and friends? Things that maybe have gone on for years that have never been reconciled. Again, you can't just take all things are possible and make it the tagline for everything. But in the context of this passage, here's a desperate father saying, I have exhausted everything. There's nothing else that I can do here. I need Christ to step in and take charge and be the sovereign Lord. You know what? Whether it's a struggle with sins or unsaved relative relationships, maybe it's your guilt and shame before God, your double life of hypocrisy, 
your struggle with depression, discouragement, whatever it is, bringing it to the Lord and saying, Lord, I know that you can do all things in your will. All things within your plan are possible. I want to submit to you that I can't, but you can. Let me encourage you tonight. God is speaking to you just like He spoke to the Father whose son was possessed by a demon. These things are not obstacles that are insurmountable. They are opportunities for us to see Christ triumph. Is our God able? Yes. We must trust Him. Trust in His ability. Trust in His power. And lastly, when your faith is at its weakest point, Trust in the strong Savior to increase your faith in Him. Sometimes we get to that point where we want to quit, want to give up. We're exhorted in this story to believe in God's ability to strengthen our faith. Listen, God is not looking for you or me to manufacture faith, but to declare our dependence upon Him for faith in prayer. You see the difference? He's not saying you need to somehow go home and work on this. You need to believe on your own. I'm not going to help you here. God is not sending us out of this building to do that. He is sending us out saying, I will help you. I will even enable you to believe. I'm not asking you to manufacture this at all. When your faith is at its weakest point, trust in the strong Savior to increase your faith in Him. You may feel powerless tonight. You may feel helpless. But there is a powerful God. There is Christ on the throne who says, you come to me. Bring those problems to me. Trust me. Lean on me. Depend upon me. Even if your faith is frail, even if it seems what you're facing is impossible, you can come to me. Who does he invite in that passage in, in Matthew? He says, come all that you are weak and what? Heavy laden. Come all of you guys that think you got it, that think you can do it. Come, go ahead. Anyone here who thinks of themselves as strong, come, come and... No, you you need to come to God on your knees, weak, heavy laden. Those who are burdened down, who are just barely crawling, barely putting one hand in front of another on the ground. And he says, I will give you rest. Cast your cares on me and I. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. Cast your cares on me because I care for you.